All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Lawman is putting into my running, and I'm so far from my home. Oh, mama, I can hear you a-crying, you're so scared and all alone. Hangman is coming down from the gallows, and I don't have very long. Ah, the jig is up, the news is out, they finally found me. The renegade who had it made retrieve for a bounty. Never more to go astray, this'll be the end today of the wanted man. The wanted fishing professor, that is. Hey, welcome to the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor. And yes, I am the renegade Rodcaster. And we have got a great episode of the Rodcast for you this week. We have got Mr. Chris Horton in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Mr. Horton is the Senior Directory of Fisheries Policy for the Congressional Sportsman Foundation, and he and I will be talking fishing and policy. And after Mr. Horton and I jabber a bit, I'll turn my attention to Willet Pot Still Reserve Bourbon. And then for the professor's top 10 list this week, I'm going to put aside the tackle and gear for a bit. I'm going to count down my top 10 instructional fishing books, the books that teach us the how-tos of fishing. Hey, speaking of how-tos, we all know how to keep our fish fresh by storing them on ice in the cooler. But did you know that anglers spend almost $300 million a year on ice? That's a lot of ice. But I got to know if they're accounting for the ice we store our beer in or the ice we use to make our margaritas with. I bet if we accounted for all the ice anglers used for angling adjacent activities like daiquiris and rum runners, I bet that number would be a lot higher. Hey, did you know that the rum runner was invented back in the 1950s at the Holiday Isle Tiki Bar in Isla Mirada, Florida? Indeed, and that's a pre-Bourbon Breaks Anglers update, because you know who hung out at Holiday Isle Tiki Bar in the 1950s? Anglers, that's who. So you better believe the rum runner has a place in angling history, and therefore, we need to revise our ice spending numbers to account for all the ice used in angling bars. And with that, let's get casting. Okay, my listening crew, we are fortunate today to have one of the country's leading fisheries policy professionals on the broadcast today. That's right, we have got Chris Horton, the Senior Director of Fisheries Policy for the Congressional Sportsman Foundation with us. Now, Chris joined the Congressional Sportsman Foundation, or as I will call it, the CSF for ease throughout this. He joined back in 2010 as the Midwestern State's Director, and he oversaw and interacted with the State Legislative Sportsman Caucus and members of the Governor's Sportsman Caucus throughout the Midwest. As the Senior Director of Fisheries Policy, he serves as CSF's primary point of contact on federal recreational fishing issues. He also is an ass assists the state program's team staff with challenges for anglers, both at the state and regional levels. 
Chris currently serves on the Sport Fishing and Boating Partnership Council and has served on the Marine Protected Area Federal Advisory Committee, the Board of the National Fish Habitat Partnership, and the Future Fishermen Foundation Board of Directors. Now, before joining the CSF, Chris had been the Conservation Director over at BASS, and before that, he held a couple of positions with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Now, in his role at BASS, Chris worked with and represented the BASS Federation, Nation, and Bass members on local, state, and national conservation issues that affect sport fishing. While at Bass, he was part of a U.S. delegation to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization in the development of a code of practice for recreational fisheries. And we're fortunate to have Chris on the Rodcast today, and I'm hoping he's going to share a lot of that fisheries expertise with us. Man, Chris, I haven't seen you in weeks. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here with me today. It's great to see you, Sid, and thanks so much. Uh, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to join you. Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. We've been talking about sitting down and talking for a while now, and I want to kick things off as I tend to do on the Rodcast with a bit of background knowledge. And I just gave a little bit of a summary of your professional background, but tell us about the Chris Horton origin story. How'd you get into fishing? Well, uh, that's that's a great well, it's a great story at least from my perspective. I, the <laughs> earliest memory, one of the earliest memories I have, was somewhere around the age of four or five. My grandmother loved the fish, and uh, I remember fishing with her on a local creek. I grew up in Arkansas on a little, little creek down by their house, and and uh, in the summertime, I'd spend probably more time with my grandparents than I did at, at home. And and uh, she would she would get up and take me fishing in the mornings, and and uh, this was fishing with the old style cane pole and and a bobber, and and uh, man, I got hooked from that first day. You know, it's one of those things you go back in those memories. I, I can still smell what the creek smelled like, you know, and, and uh, I can still see her vividly in her, her big straw hat and, and, uh, and how excited she got when she caught fish or I caught fish. So uh, that kind of got me started on that path. And uh, I, I grew up hunting and fishing again, being from rural Arkansas, that's, that's, that's what you do, but uh, it kept me out of trouble. Uh, I mean, I, I hunted everything, fished for everything here uh, all the time. And when I got to college, you know, I was looking for a career and, and, uh, and I, I love sciences, I love biology. So I, I, I got a degree in, in, uh, in a general degree in biology and then, uh, decided that I did want to work for a state natural resource agency and, and your, your best options for, for an agency, um, role, uh, and especially to advance up to administration is, is to be able to get it an advanced degree. So I went to University of Arizona, got a master's degree in fisheries. Most people say, well, why don't you go to Arizona? They don't even have water. Well, they, they actually do have some water. They have some great reservoirs out there. And uh, I did a crappie project for the Arizona Fish and Game Department. Um, got was fortunate in that uh, after I graduated, I had an opportunity to come back to Arkansas and, and uh, started out as a technician on a hatchery until uh, the reservoir research position opened up, which I knew was coming. So I applied for that and, and, and got it. And uh, Two years in, about about seventy five percent of the projects I worked on, projects I worked on were bass related, largemouth, smallmouth, spotted, uh, because that was really the number one fishery in the state. Uh, is targeted by the most anglers was bass. So uh, our fish chief recognized we had a trout program. We didn't have a largemouth bass program. We had more fishermen fishing for largemouth bass and trout. So why don't we start a bass program? So. He uh he basically renamed me the, the the black bass program coordinator. So I was the first black bass biologist for the state of Arkansas. But but you know, you know, five years into my career working with a politically appointed commission, 
I realized pretty early on that natural resource management is much about people and politics as it is about the critter. Now I love I love working with with fish. I didn't think I'd ever do anything different. I love being a fisheries biologist, but I really realized that if you really want to make a difference in fisheries management and sustainability and, and having abundant fisheries and access to those fisheries, you really need to get engaged on the on the policy side, on the political side. So it's just fortuitous that about that same time. Uh, the largemouth bass virus was was making its way across the the eastern half of the United States, and, and BASS did a great job of organizing various state agencies and, and universities to come together. And what what is this virus? I mean, it's it's brand new. How's it going to impact our population? So we were having these summits. So I got to working with BASS on that uh, here in Arkansas. On they had an opportunity for a conservation manager come open and invited me to apply. So I did, and and uh, I thought that was just kind of the right. The right place at the right time, because that was at the point that I realized I got to get involved in the policy side. It would be nice to actually work for anglers and, and not just anglers, but work for the largest fishing organization in the United States membership base. So it was it was a pretty easy decision. I, I jumped shipped and, and loved my time with bass, uh, representing bass anglers. That's that's fantastic. Hey, you know, I didn't even think about it. I'm assuming that um, in your work with, at um, in, in Arkansas, that uh, you had connections with Brian Hendricks over at the uh, Democrat Gazette. You know, Brian was on the show uh, a while back, and we talked a lot about that Arkansas trout fishery and how the 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 bass fishing tends to overshadow the trout fishery in Arkansas, and how the state has really worked with some of the some of the most productive um, hatcheries in the country for trout uh, in northern Arkansas there. Yes, no, that we we have a phenomenal trout fishery in the state of Arkansas. Um, we have actually we're blessed with we have two federal hatcheries in the state. And the reason those federal hatcheries are there is because those are considered mitigation hatcheries. So when they built those dams a long time ago, you know, those dams uh, like for bull shows, that's a giant reservoir. I think it's around 40,000 acres. Uh, so you have um, this massive water body that generates hydropower, but it generates hydropower from the lower part of the uh, of the reservoir. So that water is always cold. It's a very cold, constant temperature. Well, that basically destroyed uh, our native fisheries in the, in the White River downstream. So in order to, to mitigate for that loss of our native fish uh, for local communities, they built federal fish hatcheries to supplement that fishery with trout because it now was conducive for trout. Where trout are not native to Arkansas, but it was very conducive to trout. And uh, those hatcheries just, they, they support, they they have really created an incredible fishery, trout fishery in the state of Arkansas. And I I've talked to people out west that say, yeah, I want to come fish the White River just just because of the sheer numbers, the productivity that those reservoirs can support is 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 enormous. So we have really good fisheries. We haven't had to stock brown trout in a long time because they're just naturally reproducing in the reservoir now or in the tailwaters now. So and it's not just not just the White River; it's the Little Red River coming out of uh, Heber Springs, which for a while when I was with the agency. I held the world record brown trout is 42 pounds, four ounces. I mean, wow. that's it was a giant brown. <laughs> wow. I've only fished the white once and it was for white bass. I was doing a story on white bass, uh, and uh, on the white river, but I, yeah, I told Brian, I want to come up. I want to, I want to do some trout fishing there in Arkansas. That, that to me just sounds fantastic. Brian so, is always up for an excuse to go fishing. Trust me. Uh, but yeah, I know Brian. Well, I knew, knew his predecessor, Trey Reed, who's now at the Arkansas game of fish was with ESPN. And I knew Steve Bowman very well. Uh, Steve, yeah. Steve was the first writer for Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And, uh, he and I used to have a differing, differing opinions sometimes on, on bass management. So it was always, but I, Steve and I are good longtime friends. 
Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, Brian and I are good friends. Uh, I, I was with him when he got his first marlin down in Baja. We 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 spend a lot of time talking fishing. So awesome. I got to ask you too, particularly because of some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, but also because I know you and I know about your uh, your uh, your like of saltwater fishing. We'll call it like, which is an understatement. How does an Arkansas boy get introduced to saltwater fishing? That's that's a great question. Uh, it actually started with bass because when I first started with bass, it was still located in the headquarters of, of Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, shortly after I, I went to work for bass, bass just prior to coming to work, they were already purchased by ESPN, which was owned by Disney. Uh, two years into my, my time with bass, they relocated the company down to Orlando, Florida, closer to the Disney, just kind of synergizing. Disney has some great great bass fishing there on those those lakes and, and run a lot of folks through, uh, introduce a lot of folks to fishing down there. So if you go to Disney, uh, Disney World down in Orlando, check out the fishing too. It's great. Uh, but you take a boy from the hills of Arkansas and put me in central Florida, I have access to both coasts. Uh, it was probably a week, two weeks we were down there. And uh, me and the editor of Bassmaster Magazine, James Hall, you know well, uh, we both had to, we both purchased kayaks and uh, we started fishing over on Mosquito Lagoon and, and uh, the Banana River for trout and, and uh, man, just loved it. But uh, I did that for about two months and realized, man, I got to have a combustible engine so I can get to more fish. <laughs> so, so I bought a used bay boat and uh, it just took off from there. Um, we, we fished, we fished from, for uh, Mahi Mahi or Dolphin uh, off the Atlantic coast. We go over to Tampa and St. Pete and go out of there to fish for a, uh, for grouper and, uh, and inshore fish for snook. We even targeted shark on a number of trips and, and really love shark fishing. So, I mean, we just, there's always something biting in, 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 the in the marine environment. Whereas here in Arkansas, when it gets cold in the wintertime, bass fishing is still good, but you're looking for three or four bites a day, you know, and, and those will probably be big bites, but, uh, but it's just not, it's not the nonstop action you can find in saltwater. Yeah, I just love that it was bass that introduced you to saltwater. That it was, it was. The, the largest organization in freshwater fishing gets you into saltwater. And since we mentioned uh, James, or my buddy James Hall, your buddy James Hall, he uh, just was on the broadcast recently, so people can look back to that episode as well. So all that is fantastic. So talk to me then about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Because I don't think that a lot of everyday anglers know much about the foundation. You know, certainly anybody who goes into Bass Pro sees the logo up there on the wall and every single Bass Pro in the country. But talk about the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation's mission, what your role is, and what 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 it does. Yeah, thanks, Sid. I appreciate that opportunity. Uh, yeah, it's probably it's not as well known as as some of the other national fishing organizations like CCA or BASS, but uh, because our members are, are are policymakers, they're they're members of state legislatures, they're members of Congress, the members they're they're governors. But uh, but yeah, is it late late nineteen eighties? Some members in, uh, on the Hill, both Democrats and Republicans, and both the House and Senate said. You know, there's caucuses for everything up here. Why don't we start a sportsman's caucus? So they did. It uh, started with a handful of members, I think around 40 or something, but it quickly grew to be the largest caucus on the hill because, you know, natural resource management, fishing and hunting is, bipart is bipartisan. And, uh, you know, fin, fur and feathers transcend party lines. So it was something that um, everybody could kind of get behind. And and uh, to this day, it's still one of the largest caucuses on the hill. Well, in 2004, uh, we went to the state legislatures 
to see if they wanted to implement a similar type model within each individual state. And uh, it, the the National Assembly Sportsman's Caucus is the umbrella organization that, that we manage that uh, uh, encompasses all the caucuses. They started with 21 state legislative sportsman's caucuses in, in 2004. Um, and just as of last week, we completed our 50th caucus, uh, which was the Hawaii caucus. That was the, the 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 last holdout. But now they have a sportsman's caucus in their legislature, or an outdoor heritage caucus, I believe is what they called it. But, uh, but it's where hunters and anglers can come together in Hawaii and, and work with their legislature on good policy. That's interesting to me. I mean, the whole thing about what CSF does is interesting to me. But uh, I, I did not know that about uh, Hawaii. Uh, particularly because I've always been intrigued. I, I fish Hawaii fairly often, um, but I've always been intrigued by their sort of leniency in fisheries management. You know, there's no recreational license. There's not a lot of regulation around gear and not a lot of regulation around slot limits or size. And so I'm I'm glad to hear that CSF is starting to have those conversations out there. Yeah, right. They, they, they have been one. They don't have a... a, a a fish and wildlife agency like most states do, like we're we're familiar with, and so there hasn't been a lot, lot of the uh, the fisheries management's been left to local communities, and um, it, it is. I think they're recognizing now that maybe we do need to start really, really uh, making sure that we can sustainably manage our fisheries as the population grows, as pressure on the resource increases, that there needs to be a little bit more oversight. And we always want to make sure, and, and CSF's mission is to make sure that hunters and anglers have a voice with with uh, policymakers. And uh, so we always want to make sure that, that anglers are at the table in any of these type of policy decisions and that we're making the best decisions for the future of our fisheries. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. So one more thing about CSF generally, talk about the Congressional Sportsman's Breakfast, because having seen that, and I know you guys get a lot of work done at that event, but that to me is always just sort of an intriguing event because of who you have in attendance there, because that goes well beyond Congress and CSF also. Right. Well, before, prior to the pandemic, we would often have, uh, we'd have policy briefings on the Hill, uh, breakfast briefings. Um, so we would invite members of the sportsman's community there and then Hill, um, Hill staffers and as well as as members of Congress to get together for for breakfast and we'd present on a policy issue, whether it be a, a fisheries or wildlife or conservation uh, uh, topic that we would like to see addressed legislatively or specific pieces of legislation that we're moving. Uh, since the pandemic, a lot of those have have, uh, have still been virtual, but we still get together uh, for the, the we have an annual banquet each year in September, and that'll be the largest gathering. Of, of legislators from both sides of the aisle outside the Capitol uh, is for that banquet that night. And uh, it, it's something that's looked forward to throughout the year. Um, but yeah, those, those congressional briefings are, are very, uh, very important to be able to connect the sportsman's community with the ones that are actually casting the votes on the floors. Um, and then one of the ones that we did when we were working on the Modern Fish Act was, was, uh, was actually, we called it the Way in on the Hill. You know, we wanted to bring anglers and charter boat captains to Washington, D.C. and to make it worth the while. We had a lunch in the Senate Visitor Center with with members there, but uh, a lot of staff there. And then, as you know, we, we put you guys through the ringer. We uh, uh, we had hill visits before that lunch, after that lunch, next day for some folks. But uh, but but we really wanted to to get as many uh, recreational angler representatives in their offices so that they could hear directly from you. And that's kind of our. That's one of our biggest goals. We're, we're 
we're policy experts too. I mean, we can work on legislation directly with, with the members, but but they really need to hear from their constituents out there. And that's an incredible, incredibly important part of what CSF tries to do is to put the hunting and fishing community there with those members. Yeah, that was fantastic. I will tell you that after that, that event really changed how I think about things. I think I've told Mike Leonard and Glenn Hughes and some others that that's the work I want to do. I want to, I want to be up there doing that kind of talking, that kind of working with legislatures. Again, that to me was one of the, that was one of the big events in my professional fishing life was being able to attend that and being able to sit and talk with legislatures. Now you mentioned now twice in what you've been talking about in terms of bipartisanship and um, Congressman Whitman has been on the show and I've spoken with him multiple times. I've also spoken with Congressman Graves multiple times. He has not yet been on the show, but why is it? What, I mean, what is it that's so wonderful about outdoor conservation, recreation, sportsmanship and that makes this a bipartisan effort. I mean, this is like the one the one thing in our entire nation right now where that bipartisanship becomes so evident. And the the Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I, I think it's just something that, it, again, it doesn't matter what party you're from. I mean, you have, those members have constituents. If they don't do it themselves, there's a lot of members on the Hill that fish and, and quite a few that hunt. But uh, but even if they don't do it themselves, they have a lot of constituents that do it. Uh, they know they have that that fishing, hunting, outdoor recreation is, is important to their folks back home and the folks that they represent. So it's just the the bills themselves are usually not controversial they oftentimes get caught up in in partisan politics when because a lot of times some of the things that we work on aren't necessarily priorities that stand alone so they get attached to legislation and then it gets kind of tricky with with all the politics going on in dc getting that over the finish line but uh but yeah that the outdoors just have stor- historically have been have been a uh, uh, have been wholly bipartisan yeah that that to me is just fantastic um, it, it also just shows that we're able to actually have bipartisan conversations still, which is always, you know, a worrisome thing in our, our country these days. So through CSF, you specifically work on a whole bunch of conservation and policy issues. And frankly, there's just a lot of stuff we could talk about, but there's no way we're going to cover everything that you do with fisheries management issues uh, in, in today's conversation. But I do want to talk about some of the things you're working on right now. And I want to start off with one of the important bills you're involved with right now, which is the Farm Bill, which is a conservation program that would create the largest annual investment in private land conservation in the world. And you're working with the angling and hunting community, specifically the angling community, to organize support around this bill because of the investments in fisheries and aquatic habitats that the bill would support. Could you tell us a bit more about the farm bill and how it affects anglers? Yeah, thanks, Sid. Thanks. Uh, that's a great question. And it's something that uh, that most anglers don't rec- really recognize the, the impacts of the farm bill. The farm bill has been around since the 1980s uh, and it's steadily been tweaked and added more programs over time. But uh, the farm bill is the world's single largest concert, uh, investment in pro- voluntary private lands conservation Um to the tune of about six billion dollars a year now uh, through a number of programs. And and yeah, it's easy for hunters to recognize uh, the benefits of the, the farm bill conservation programs, because oftentimes they see it in the places they hunt. They get they in the Midwest. If you're an upland bird hunter, you might come across conservation reserve uh, program easements, which are lands that are taken out of production 
and uh, you know, native grasses are allowed to regenerate or they re actively go in and replant those. Uh, but a lot of times those are buffer strips along, along streams. So the hunter sees the, the, the pheasant and has access to, to more abundant game on those, those strips of land. But it's harder for the angler to recognize that one of the purposes of that CRP is to reduce soil erosion and sedimentation in the stream, to reduce nutrient loading in the stream, and actually improve water quality. Uh, not only locally there for those fish populations, but but downstream too. And the farm bill just has so much uh, potential to continue to improve our water quality, not just locally in those streams, but you know, waters that run off the fields and upper Midwest make its way to. One of our favorite places to fish, Venice, Louisiana. Uh, you know, we have a large hypoxic zone out there that has been exacerbated by, by nutrient runoff in fields. And, and if we can uh, continue to work with, with farmers and ranchers and private landowners to implement programs that reduce sediment loading, reduce nutrient loading, we can reduce that hypoxic area. And and really, those better water quality coming down the Mississippi, better water quality coming into the Chesapeake Bay or Sacramento uh, River Delta and California, uh, it benefits all fish populations. So it's it's an incredibly important program. There's a number of examples out there of specific farm bill projects that targeted restoring fish populations. Um, but I won't get, go into all those, but there are examples of that. But but really, the benefits of the farm bill are on a landscape scale. Yeah, yeah I, that's one of those ones that when you start talking about it, most anglers are saying, I don't see how a farm bill affects us. But clearly, I mean, just from a very basic ecological standpoint, you know, even tracing back to very basic, you know, not basic, but important conversations back to Rachel Carson's look at DDT and the hypoxic zone, you know, the effect on the Gulf hypoxic zone that you mentioned, you know, these are things are connected. And so that's why, you know, anglers have to be involved in this. All right, let me switch to another important measure you're working on, and that's the Atlantic striped bass management stuff that's going on. And you've written quite about quite a bit about this. And from what I've read in your writing about this, there are seven and a half million anglers who fish for Atlantic striped bass, ranging from Maine down to North Carolina. And the striped bass is probably the most economically important species in that part of the Atlantic. And there's also a significant cultural relationship with striper fishing in that region. Could you talk about the issues surrounding striper management and what you and CSF are doing right now? Yeah, stri stripers obviously that's the king of fishing on the on the Atlantic coast uh, from a recreational perspective, and and uh, some of the concerns with with striped bass management is that the, the the spawning stock biomass or the number of big females out there are are, are depleted at the moment uh, or, or down, and, and, it, and it appears in the last, most recent stock assessments that we have been. We have been essentially overfishing the stock. Not not the most recent one. Thing we made some changes not too long ago that that uh, that that ended basically ended the overfishing part. But but when we say overfishing, and you got to keep this in mind for any fishery, whether we're talking about striped bass or or grouper or you know any any species out there, the, the term is overfishing, but it's not necessarily anglers that are that are driving it uh sometimes there are there are environmental variables and and that's kind of what we're seeing sometimes in, well we're seeing in in the chesapeake bay with striped bass is that uh we've seen low recruitment over a number of last few years and uh with low recruitment it means that you know you're you're, you're fishing on the fish that are out there and if you're if you're removing them you can you can remove them you can remove too many at one time. And, uh, and, and some of that removal is not even harvest. It's just 
fish that are released, caught and released, and that end up dying, um, dying later. And so there's a percentage that they estimate based on several studies of how many fish that are released alive actually actually die. So that counts towards the overall harvest. Um, pause there. I'm trying to think. I was geared up towards Gulf of Mexico stuff and wasn't really. We'll, we'll get there, man. We'll get there. <laughs> well, let me let me let me extend that question and let's make it a little bit easier, though. So, in addition to that concept of over harvest, and if I'm not mistaken, I think the term you're and I I was actually just writing about this with some other species, but that post-release mortality rate, um, which is decreasing in a lot of species as we become more attentive to how we're releasing and how we're catching. Um, I think they call it what is it? Cryptic mortality, the the, the mortality we can't account for after after release. Um, but let me let me add this to it. So it seems to me also that from an economic standpoint and an ecological standpoint, that striped bass management issues are also inherently connected to the Forage Fish Act and to what's been happening with the Menhaden fishery along the Atlantic coast because of that relationship with. Um, bunkers being the primary forage for stripers in that area. Could you tie these two issues together for us and talk about the Forage Fish Act and how that ties into striper management? Yeah, uh, obviously, obviously all of our sport fish out there, they're, they're usually at the top, top level predators, but they have to have, they have to have a forage base there uh, to, to benefit, to have a robust population. Um, Menhaden harvest is is a concern in the bay, and how many fish we're harvesting there. It's not as big a concern from the ocean perspective, uh, but certainly from the bay perspective, where you have juvenile striped bass trying to grow to adult size, and they they need that forage base. Uh, there there is, I mean, just intuitively, you would think there's got to be a direct link there between the number of of menhaden out there and, and striped bass, and, and and there is. And recently, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission in their Menhaden management implemented what's called ecological reference points. So they basically did some modeling and some studies to try to figure out how many, how many Menhaden do we need to leave in the water in order to benefit striped bass. So they implemented these ERPs. They're, they're fairly new. Obviously when you, when you implement something that's, that's brand new like this, based on a lot of modeling, it's going to require some tweaking over time, but they do have some, some, supposedly some safeguards in place. Uh, could those be tweaked more? I think that hopefully that will become uh, apparent with additional research. And, and as we continue to try to manage both the, the recreational effort on, on the striped bass fishery um, and also the, the menhaden harvest, and hopefully we'll find a, we'll find a balance there. But, uh, but yeah, every, like you said, when it comes to farm bill or anything else, everything is, is connected. Yeah. And, you know, not that we're going to take the conversation in that direction, that part of what makes the Chesbay issue interesting, too, is the larger the larger arguments about the Menhaden harvest with Omega's uh, base having been right there at the mouth of the Rappahannock and then the movement to, from them over into Texas and things like that. So we with everything being connected, we also cannot disconnect the economic aspect of all of this as well and the cultural aspect. Certainly the, the folks who live around that mouth of the Rappahannock you know, that Omega and Menhaden harvest have been part of their way of life for a very long time as well. So, all right. So one of the other things that's going on right now, and I have to say that a lot of my angling friends aren't even aware of this, and that's the discussion around the right whale rules, which you've written about also. 
Could you outline what the National Marine Fisheries Service proposal is doing regarding right whale protection and why this has become such an important concern for anglers and angling-focused conservation policy organizations? Yeah, it, it is. It is a. It's going to be a big issue uh, if, if that rule is implemented as it was proposed. But but basically, right whales. There's no doubt that they are they are endangered. I mean, they're down to I think an estimated 340 individuals left, um, and a lot of their some of their more a bunch of their identified mortality comes from from uh, entanglements as well as vessel strikes. So there's already an existing speed rule uh, for ships that are 65 or vessels 65 feet and longer to reduce their speed to 10 knots in seasonal management zones. So basically, all the major ports from northern Florida. All the way up to Massachusetts, whenever they're coming into these ports, they have to, during certain times of the year when the right whales are there, they have to reduce their speed to, uh, to 10 knots to try to avoid that. Well, this new proposed rule extends that speed reduction to vessels 35 feet and longer. So obviously that gets into impacting a lot of uh, fishing vessels, a lot of charter boats, but, but a 10 knot um, maximum speed for anywhere from from 40 to in one spot, like 90 miles offshore. So we're not just going to one port area now where all the traffic is heaviest. We're, we're extending the speed zone to vessels 35 feet and larger from the shoreline to 40 to 90 miles offshore from Massachusetts down to, to Northern Florida for up to seven months out of the year, depending on their, their, their migration patterns. But uh, that's going to have a significant impact for offshore anglers. I mean, significant, uh, it will not only is it take does it take longer to go out and, and find and get get to the fish. It's going to take longer coming back and ten miles per hour, as you know, in heavy seas, that's just not a safe speed. I mean, it, you you have steerage issues. I mean, it, there's there's some safety issues there. That uh, so yeah, we're we submitted a, we as a coalition of with uh, a, a number of the, the the usual partners out there, ASA and. Uh, National Marine Manufacturers Association, uh, CCA, you know, all, all of us have been working on this issue and trying to provide some some uh, some comments and feedback. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, is this really is this really going to reduce uh, uh, mortality uh, on whales? And, and, and the evidence just the science doesn't seem to be there to say it will. I mean, there's only been five vessel strikes uh, by boats under 65 feet. And since 2008, something like that. So it's already a very small number. Are there other ways that we could we could get there? And and one is they need to increase monitoring. I mean, it's 340 animals out there. Uh, if we can tag them, if we can know where they are, well, then we can implement or expand this idea of the the dynamic speed zone. So when whales are in the area, well, then yeah, we all get an alert. We get an alert on our phone or uh, maybe on our electronics that hey, whales are in the area. You need to slow down. I think anglers would be much more willing to, 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 and want to be a part of the solution. We all care about whales, but, but let's, let's do something that actually works rather than just this broad precautionary approach that will have devastating impacts on the fishing and boating industry. Yeah. I've been reading a lot about this and it seems to me that it's, uh, and I usually don't state political opinion here, but I think it's using a sledgehammer to handle a very small nail and, uh, it, right. it, it 
you know, so, but it is something we need, we all need to be paying attention to. I mean, even in, you know, in terms of what you just mentioned, in terms of taking more time to get to and get back on trips, there's also fuel cost issues here. And there are also some basic, I mean, not that we would argue this in Congress, but, you know, if I want to go high speed trolling for Wahoo, I can't do it now in a boat like that. So, uh, you know, that makes things difficult for strategy also. Right. All right. So you alluded to it. I know it's a dangerous topic, but you know me. I can't have you here and not ask about Red Snapper and Red Snapper management, particularly yeah. in terms of the Gulf Council Management Council and the South Atlantic Management Council. But rather than just throwing an open-ended question about Red Snapper management out there, let me ask you specifically about a matter that came up, I believe, last summer when the South Atlantic Fisheries Management Council began discussing the development of a new federal fishing license for anglers who bottom fish in federal waters. Now, a lot of this has to do with the difficulty in getting accurate data from recreational anglers to assist with stock assessment data, but this idea of having a new license specifically for bottom fishing in federal waters, could you talk about why this plan has been suggested and the effect it could have on red snapper management in the Southeast sector? Yeah, in the southeast, it's a, it's it's a little bit different in that you only have from the Gulf because the Gulf it, and now have their own all, all five Gulf states have their own fisheries data collection program. Um, in the southeast, you only have Florida that has the Florida Refish Survey, uh, so they they kind of have a, a handle on how many fishermen are out there. But the purpose of this federal license is is because most of the much of the the, the harvestable red snapper quota in the southeast, as this population is rebuilding, there's getting to be more of them. They're bigger fish, so the quota is being met more quickly. And it's not just it's not being met during season. I mean, we only have a couple two three day seasons down there in recent years. But what what's happening is that going back to to the dead discards in the fishery where fish are fish are released when people are out fishing for black sea bass or or other reef fish. And there's a portion of those those fish that that die that count towards the quota, and because we're encountering more of them, uh, because the population's rebuilding, uh, we get less and less to actually uh, of a season to actually harvest those fish because we're already meeting the quota with the fish that we released. Which is, you know, that that's that's one of the frustrating parts about the federal management system under the quota is that. You, you're basically penalized for a good thing that the population is is rebuilding rapidly and we're encountering more fish, but that means our season gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's where um, that's where it was different in the Gulf, and that we finally got the the Gulf states to be able to manage the recreational quota. Um, and we're not there yet in the South Atlantic. The population's a little bit different, still still rebuilding. But uh, the purpose of the federal license is to be able to understand how many folks are out there. Uh, are we releasing as many red snappers? We we estimate from the MRIP system, and we don't know that. So how do we understand this universe of anglers that are actually out there targeting reef fish and red snapper? So that's the purpose of the federal license. I immediately, I, I have pause with the federal license just because, you know, I gladly buy a state license anywhere I go. Uh, and sometimes I buy a state license anticipating I might go there, but I know where those dollars are going. Those dollars are going back to that state agency to manage for that, that fishery, manage the habitat for that fishery. Um, 
And in addition to that, each of those license sales, there's a federal excise tax dollar that comes back to that, to those states that we already paid for in our gear. So it's a, it's a great system. It's unique to the rest of the world. A federal permit, we're, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to get that if it, if it's administered through the federal agencies. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm not sure that that really gets us any further down the road on management. Yeah, it helps us identify a universe of anglers, but I think the states can individually like the Gulf states did come up with their own programs and do this, do the same thing. Um, it doesn't get us to what we really need, which is, which is more accurate, more timely data to do in season management. I mean, this, this gets into the whole crux of the problems with federal management in the MRIP program and how it, 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 it doesn't serve us well for, uh, short event fisheries like red snapper. As a matter of fact, it penalizes on those. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because my follow-up question there was specifically about those conservation dollars that are so important that come from state level license sales and how the federal license might participate or not participate in that kind of a thing. And since, as you said, that this is really about Florida more than anywhere else, why doesn't Florida just step up and do their own uh, license, you know, specifically for south uh, southeast uh, bottom fishing, but you know, those are those are bigger governmental decisions than I I would know how to weigh in on. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's also like you said, and particularly in the way you said it, why buying your state license has become so important because otherwise those conservation dollars just sit unused and not return back into the conservation efforts. Yeah, or they go to other states, other states that are. They're selling licenses because the, the formula for distribution back to the states is is based on air, land area and license sales. So the more fishermen that buy licenses, the more money your state's going to get, which makes sense because if you got more anglers out there, they're buying more tackle. So they're contributing to that system more. So uh, it, it's it's really I can't say enough. And we call it, it it's it's the American system of conservation funding. Um, people sometimes call it the North America model. Well, the North American model is actually just how we manage fish and wildlife in this country. And it's. Uh, but it doesn't have a funding component. The license sales and the excise taxes through Pippin Robertson, Dingle Johnson, Wallet Bro um, is what really funds our, our our agency management. And like I said, there's there's nothing else like it in the world. And it's why we have such uh, such great hunting and fishing in this country. Yep, it is a fantastic program. All right, let's stick with Red Snapper because I know you're a, a big Red Snapper fisherman yourself. Um, You've written about it a bunch and have opinions on the matter, but I'd like to get you to talk about the Congressman Garrett Graves and Jared Huffman's um, introduction of the direct enhancement of snapper conservation in the economy through Novel Devices Act. I love that name. We, we shorten that to the Descend Act, by the way, uh, which requires, and this is a quote from the act, to have a venting tool or descending device rigged and ready to use when fishing for reef species in Gulf of Mexico federal waters. Now, the Descend Act went into effect this last January, in January 13th, 2022. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about its purpose. And also, have we seen any kind of success rates from this first season of red snapper fishing with the Descend Act in place? Uh, yeah, th thanks for that question. Uh, that that's something that uh, we hope to raise more awareness. Like you said, it just went into effect in January, and it's kind of anytime you implement something new like this, it's going to take a couple years for everybody to get to a become aware, b understand how to use those devices, and really start to apply them. And the Descend Act, the purpose of that was the council itself, and this was the Descend Act applies specifically to the Gulf of Mexico, and and we had we as the recreational community had asked the 
the council to pursue a mandatory descending device uh, because the more fish we can send back alive, the more fish we can have in our quota in the future. Uh, so it just makes sense. Let's if we're gonna if we have to release them anyway, let's make sure that we do our best to get them get them back down and, and uh, alive. And so the, the council wasn't willing to do that. So Congress finally finally stepped in, working working with uh, Congressman Graves and Congressman Huffman to get get that bill passed. So it, like I said, it just went into effect. Uh, the hope is that that will translate to more fish in the quota, uh, more fish, more fish available for recreational fishermen to harvest in the future, and, and not just red snapper, but but grouper and you know all the reef fish species. And you know you can use the binning tool. Anybody that does that, I would highly encourage you to watch a number of, of videos to make sure for each fish you know where you're sticking that hypodermic needle. I would. I prefer and I would recommend getting something like the sequelizer or a descending device. It is so easy to use those things. Um, this takes you a few seconds if you, you have to have a rod rigged up with the, the device on it and, and a weight ready to clip on. But it, it takes just just a couple seconds. And I, I use it and I have been using it and uh, I haven't seen a haven't seen a fish return to the top yet. So, yeah, I've heard from a lot of anglers also that using the venting tool is unless you've watched the videos, unless you know how to do it, there's always a risk of doing more damage. And I've also, of course, seen plenty of the literature out there that says just bypass the venting altogether. There, it's it's so much easier and so much more effective to use the descending device. And I, you know, I've used them. I've seen them used. Like you said, it's you just keep a rod rigged with it. You clip the fish, you know, on, and you let it down, and the fish swims away. It's you know, quick and easy thing. So yeah, yeah. Uh, one mistake I've seen a lot of novices do on the venting part is you know when you you have that that uh most people think it's the swim bladder coming out of their mouth, mouth you know, yeah. they get to the top it top but that's not their swim bladder that's the back of their throat uh that's being pushed by the swim bladder out so if you poke that you just poke the hole in the in, in the cavity of the fish so it's just going to fill up with water and it's guaranteed to die yeah yeah. And that's why I think all those resources that are out there on how to use the venting tool, like you said, are very important um, in knowing what you're doing. And I also think it's also changing our culture of catch and release to where we want to be more aware about the physiology of how a fish can be released rather than the tried and true method of chuck it back overboard. Um, you know, right. and certainly every single species of fish that we release requires a different kind of release procedure. So a red snapper on a descend device is very different from a sailfish that you need to keep in the current or versus, you know, a big tarpon versus a redfish, you know, these, these release methods are all very different. And I think that, you know, historically we've just always thought that release means chuck it back in the water and uh, there's, there's a lot more to it. So I'm grateful for the people who are putting out um, like um, release it right. And some of the other organizations that are teaching us how to do these things. Yeah. Return Return them right. Yeah, you can go to their website and you can take their tutorial. And as of right now, they still have supplies. You can get a free, a couple of free descending devices uh, will be sent to you just for completing that course. So I'd encourage folks that haven't done that yet to do that. Yep, I agree. Well, Chris, this has all been fantastic. And I can't thank you enough for all you're doing for anglers to protect angler rights across the country and for conservation of our habitats. But I think it's time we wrap up this conversation. So I want to ask you my traditional wrap-up question. And that is, what is the Chris Horton grail fish? What's the one that's out there on your bucket list that you still got to catch? Oh, my goodness. Uh <laughs> 
You know, I would have said Blue Marlin, but I caught my first one in St. Louis. My wife and I, I've been blessed to be married for 30 years. So this year on our vacation, Congrats. she wanted to go somewhere. And I said, as long as it had good fishing and good diving, you pick. So we went to St. Lucia and got in on the tail end of, uh, of, of the Marlin season. So I caught a Blue Marlin. But, uh, you know, one one that is on my bucket list is is a rooster fish. Uh, I've never caught a rooster fish. And, and uh, they, they look like they're – well, at least the, the battles that I've seen, it's it's like a a Jack Jack Cravali on steroids. Uh, yeah. So I would love to go catch them in those in those uh, in in the tidal zone there. Yeah, that's a fantastic bucket list fish. I don't know if anybody's mentioned that one before. That's fantastic. I want to report when you get one. I want to hear all about it. So that's you, that's great. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. <laughs> Chris, seriously, thank you so much for what you're doing for us as anglers. And thank you for your work on the Hill and in terms of conservation efforts and angler rights efforts. And especially thanks for taking the time today to be on the Rodcast. Well, thanks again, Sid. I really appreciate the opportunity and keep up the great work. It's, it's a great podcast. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right, my listening and drinking crew, after that awesome conversation with my buddy Chris Horton, I could use a celebratory drink, and that works out well because it is that time in the rod cast when we put the rod in the rod holder, loosen up the drag a bit, take a bourbon break. And in this week's bourbon break, I want to relax into a deck chair, listen to the water lap in the hull, and pour out a few thoughts about Willet Pot Still Reserve bourbon. Now, I am fortunate to have received a bottle of the Willet Pot Still Reserve bourbon from my family as a gift recently. And when asking them what made them select the Willet, which I have certainly been wanting to try, but hadn't really said anything to anyone about it, and certainly didn't admit I wanted to try it yet, and they said that the bottle caught their eye on the shelf. And there is no doubt that the Willet bottle is eye-catching. In fact, I don't think there is a comparable bottle design out there like the Willet bottle. It's an elegant, eye-catching design, and I figure that if that's the reason they bought me the bottle, then that's good enough reason as any to sample the Amber Mountain Dew contained therein. Having the bottle made me curious, not just about the whiskey, but also about the distiller, so I got to Googling's. The Willett family immigrated from England to Maryland back in 1692, where they remained until 1792, when William Willett Jr. headed west for the great state of Kentucky, which separated from Virginia and was admitted into the Union as the 15th state on June 1st, 1792, exactly 174 years and 92 days before I myself was born in the great state of Kentucky. That's important history. Take note. The Willett family started distilling in 1841, and John David Willett established himself as a master distiller, working at various distilleries around the state. His son, A. Lambert Willett, would do the same and ended up also buying a small farm. Unfortunately, prohibition stifled the Willett's distillation efforts, but when the repeal came in and the Willett family, the Willett family then built a distillery on Lambert Willett's farm. And in 1936, the Willets launched the Willett Distilling Company, and they rolled their first barrel of whiskey into the warehouse for aging on St. Patrick's Day, 1937. Now, interestingly, Willett kept making bourbon until the energy crisis of 1970s, when they shifted their business to produce alcohol for Gasohol. Y'all remember Gasohol, right? But unfortunately for the Willets, that didn't work out too well for them. But here's the interesting thing. 
Back in the 1970s, folks stopped buying whiskey, and the Willets had a lot of stock left in their warehouse, so they were able to keep bottling and selling it. They also changed their company name from Willet Distilling Company to Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, now very familiarly known as KBD. When they finally sold off most of their on-hand stock, KBD started buying stock from other distillers that were also having trouble selling their stock. That is, they basically started outsourcing from distillers who couldn't sell their own whiskeys. But in 2012, KBD went back to its original name and started distilling its own bourbons again. Now, the bourbon we're talking about today, the Willet Pot Still Reserve bourbon, was introduced in 2008 before Willet reclaimed their original company name. But Willet doesn't disclose much about that bourbon. There's no mash bill listed anywhere, so we assume the standard at least 51% corn, so they can call it bourbon. But beyond that, we don't know much. Likewise, the bottle says that the bourbon is bottled by Willet, not distilled, so it may very well be that they are still using outsourced bourbons for the Willet bourbons. Now, like I said, the bottle is really unique. It looks like a bottle you'd see in a period piece movie if a character was pouring some very expensive brandy to royalty or something like that. It's got this big bulbous base and a long lean net that is capped by a big cork. It actually visually resembles a pot still without the swan neck or the cooling tubes. A pot still, by the way, is a more contemporary mechanism for distilling liquors. It didn't really gain popularity in the distillation world until after the 1850s. The Willet bottle is transparent and has some gold lettering on the labeling on it. But given the amber coppery gold coloration of the bourbon itself, that labeling is really hard to read. It gets lost in the background color. The beautiful bottle is also tough to pour since all of the liquor is housed in the bulbous bottom and it creates pressure as it tries to flow through, flow out through that very narrow long neck. So it comes blasting out the opening a lot faster than you might expect. So I think of the bottle as beautiful but cumbersome. Now the bourbon itself, the nose is very light. It's a 94 proof bourbon, so not a lot of heavy alcohol scent coming off the pour. It's been aged 8 to 10 years, so it's had a good time in the oak. The nose is light and fruity and sweet, like citrusy with some florals like cherry blossom and certainly some dark cherries in there too. You can smell the oak, but it's not a prominent part of the scent, and the sweetness seems to be carried by a buttery sweet. The palate is definitely sweet, like brown sugar and butter, caramel and vanilla, and that hint of oaky smoothness but it's a light tasting bourbon. It doesn't hang on the glass or on the palate. That sweet hangs on throughout the taste spectrum into the finish, which again is light, but it also brings some spiciness to the taste that wasn't there before. Some cinnamon added to the buttery sweetness, signaling, signaling the presence of the rye in the mash bill. Overall, it's a very pleasant and light bourbon. You can find it for around 50 bucks a bottle, though I've seen it as high as 60 and as low as 40. Because it's a smaller batch bourbon, there's not a lot of it around, so don't expect to find it at every liquor store you frequent. The uniqueness of the bottle is undoubtedly the outstanding quality of the bourbon. Otherwise, it's a fairly okay bourbon, nothing exceptional and nothing wrong. Solid bourbon. And those, my friends, are my thoughts about Willet Pot Still Bourbon. And as a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews ain't sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how. 
that I have developed over many years in many of these countries, finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to Surfer the Bar on Jacksonville Beach, Florida. A great beach vibe, great wait staff, great food, and great drinks. This is one of those bars that I somehow managed to tell myself I'm just going to stop in for a quick afternoon drink, and then somehow I find myself still there well after midnight and several drinks past my planned one. It's just got that vibe. It's a place where you just want to hang out. And so, May we never go to hell, but may we always be headed in that direction. As always, if you got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inbenefishing.com. Now, back to the Rodcast. All right, I think it's time for this week's Fishing Professor's Top 10 List. And this week, I'm going to put aside the tackle and gear and start to look at the great tradition of books about fishing. Now, in order to do so, you have to understand that fishing has been written about all the way back to the 1400s and has been referred to as the most written about sport. In fact, for a long time, Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler was the second most reprinted book in the English language, second only to the common book of prayer. So there's a lot of books about fishing out there. Now, William Humphrey, in his fantastic book, My Moby Dick, sets the distinction for literary categorization and the importance of the literary fishing tradition. He explains that, and this is a quote from Humphrey, that the literature of angling falls in two genres, the instructional and the devotional. The former is written by fishermen who write, and the latter by writers who fish. I always liked Humphrey's distinction between books that are instructional and books that are devotional. Of course, there are a lot of fishing books that are both. And as I've said before, we've also seen a new kind of fishing book over the last 50 years or so that I think of as conservational books, books that urge us to think about the role of fishing and conservation. So really, there's no way to actually reduce all of the books about fishing out there to just a simple list of 10. So for today's list, using Humphrey's categorizations of devotional and, and instructional, I want to count down my top 10 instructional books, books that teach us how to fish. Now, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of instructional fishing books out there. Some are generic, covering a broad range of general skills, and some are very specific to a kind of fishing or to a region of fishing. For example, Norman Strung and Milt Roscoe's 1973 book, Spin Fishing, The System That Does It All, is a great introduction to using spinning gear, as is Joseph D. Bates Jr.'s 1951 book, Spinning for American Game Fish, and Ed Mashburn's Kayak Fishing the Northern Gulf Coast, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana is a great regional instructional book. But for the sake of this list, I'm going to combine books that are more general and look at books that have become classics and books that I have learned so much from about fishing. Likewise, what is not represented in this list of instructional books are the countless numbers of instructional resources now available online, many of which are absolutely fantastic. Some are crap, but there are a lot of good ones out there too. So pitter-patter, let's get at her. At number 10, let's make our first cast in with the Complete Manual for Young Sportsmen, the original handbook for hunting, fishing, and game. Now, I'm including this book here for the same reason a few others appear on the list, and that's because of its historical significance. The Complete Manual for Young Sportsmen was first published in 1857 by Stringer and Townsend. This is a publisher you're probably most known for publishing the novels of James, James Fenimore Cooper. 
Frank Forrester edited the book and republished it in 2019 with Clydesdale Press and 2019, and it features a foreword by Nick Lyons, one of the greatest fishing writers of the last half century and editor for Lyons Press, the most prestigious publishing house for fishing books. Now, as the title says, The Complete Manual for Young Sportsmen, the original handbook for hunting, fishing, and game, is really about outdoor sports in general, and it offers instructions, tips, and facts about everything from hunting to fishing to animal habits. For fishing, it covers fishing in rivers, lakes, and saltwater. It's skill-driven and a great introduction to learning to fish or learning to improve your fishing. All right, and number nine, let's go with Ken Obereff's 1978 classic, The Practical Angler's Guide to Successful Fishing. Now, Obereff's book earned the reputation as the Steelhead Fishing Bible, but it really is a great instructional guide for most kinds of freshwater fishing. It covers baits, lures, equipment, tackle boxes, clothing, and even guides for taking great picks. It really is a classic and very useful fishing guidebook. At number eight, how about John Weiss's Advanced Bass Fishing? First published back in 1976, Advanced Bass Fishing was a breakthrough book, really digging into the nuances of bass fishing. Weiss himself, a renowned fishing writer, was the first writer to really take up the role of light penetration in water and how it affects fishing. But advanced bass fishing digs into the details of light penetration, structure, oxygen levels, water temperature, feeding behaviors, lure selection, and dozens of other aspects of freshwater fishing. It really is one of the most informative fishing books out there and certainly one of the best instructional books out there. At number eight, let's go big. I mean, literally one of the biggest books I have on my shelves, not just on my fishing bookshelves, but on all of my bookshelves. And I have hundreds of books on my shelves. I'm talking about McLean's New Standard Fishing Encyclopedia and International Angling Guide. This really is an encyclopedic volume that covers a near endless catalog of methods of fresh and saltwater angling. There are more than 6,000 entries in the book, and it includes drawings, charts, diagrams, and step-by-step -step illustrated lessons. A.J. McLean tapped more than 150 fishing experts to put this beast of a guide together. McLean, of course, was the Zeus of fishing writing, serving as fishing editor for Field and Stream for more than 30 years from the 1940s until the 1980s. He wrote more than a dozen fantastic instructional fishing books, but McLean's New Standard Fishing Encyclopedia and International Angling Guide is the most comprehensive, and I am a firm believer that every angler needs a copy of this book. I have multiple editions, and I turn to it often. All right, at number six, how about IGFA's 101 Freshwater Fishing Tips and Tricks by Bill Dance? Now, maybe I'm including this book here because I'm a big old Bill Dance fan, and Bill Dance's outdoor TV show probably taught me more about fishing than any book out there. That show launched when I was one year old, and throughout my childhood, I watched so many episodes and learned so much about fishing, even though not a soul in my family ever went bass fishing, including me. We're a saltwater family, and it probably wasn't until I was 10 years old before I even cast to a bass. And that's a story I tell in my first fishing book, Distance Casting, Words and Ways of the Saltwater Fishing Life. Now, Dance has written six other books, but IGFA's 101 Freshwater Fishing Tips and Tricks is probably his best instructional book, in my humble opinion. The 101 tips he offers covers everything from lure selection to knot tying. It's just a great instructional book. All right, coming in halfway down the list, let me point to the Total Fishing Manual, Catch Giant Fish, with these 318 Essential Skills by Joe Carmel. 
You probably know Caramel as the fishing editor for Field and Stream for more than a decade, and as the host of Hookshots, the video and podcast series. Like McLean before him, Cremel tapped some of the best fishing writers in the field and some of the best that Field and Stream have ever published to create this 318-topic guidebook. And of course, given Cremel's penchant for visual media, the book has a bunch of great illustrations and photographs as well. It's an incredibly comprehensive guidebook covering just about anything you want to learn to do or know about fishing. At number four, Bob McNally's Fisherman's Knots fishing rigs and how to use them is a must-have guidebook. Yeah, it focuses on knots, but by default, it connects those knots to learning about line, to learning about lures and rigs and learning how to fight fish and the effect of knots on how you fight fish. That is, it's a unique approach to thinking about just about every aspect of our tackle through the perspective of understanding how knots, often described as the weakest part of our fishing systems, about how they affect our fishing. Just a great, smart resource to have. And number three, I want to pay homage not just to an amazing instructional fishing book, but to one of the most influential and important figures in recreational fishing, specifically within the fly fishing world, and that is Joan Wolfe and her iconic book, Joan Wolfe's Fly Casting Techniques. We all know Joan Salvato Wolfe as the first lady of fly fishing. In 1951, she won the National Fly Casting Distance title by winning the all-male competition and was a national casting, casting champion from 1943 to 1960. My casting doesn't even compete. She is regarded as the architect of modern-day fly casting mechanics in her book, one of several. Her, uh, Joan Wolfe's Fly Casting Techniques is an iconic instructional book about the art of fly casting. It offers fantastic instruction about every aspect of fly casting, including sections about line speed, improving accuracy and distance, loop control, and so much more. Even if you don't fly fish, this is a book you want to read for its wisdom and for what you can learn about the mechanics of casting. I will admit that it is a book that helped me think about my surf casting and all of my other casting, not just my fly casting. With the utmost respect, props to Joan Wolf for everything she's given fishing. All right, in the runner-up position, let's play. Let's pay tribute not just to one of the greatest instructional fishing books ever written, but one of the most important, most influential fishing books ever written. I mentioned it at the beginning of this top 10 list, but I need to honor it here, and I'm talking about Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler. It was first published in 1653 by Richard Marriott in London, but the book was widely read in the American colonies because it functioned as a field manual or guidebook for methods for catching fish and for preparation of fish as food. Uniquely, too, it served as a kind of meditation on the joys of fishing, a kind of philosophical approach to engaging the outdoors that found a metaphysical home in the new American psyche. It's not a book you're going to read to learn how to fish with contemporary tackle, but it's a book you read to learn about how that tackle evolved from early fishing origins. There are a lot of instructional details about hooks and lines and types of fish, and it really is an eye-opening examination of how anglers learned to fish in the 1600s. To be fair, to be fair, to be fair, I should note that Walton borrowed heavily, okay, maybe even plagiarized, from earlier works like Dame Juliana Berner's The Treaties of Fishing with an Angle, which appeared included in the Book of St. Albans in 1486, 
Walton also quoted several verses from John Denny's 1613 work, The Secrets of Angling. Now, I should note, too, that Berner's Treaties of a, a Fishing with an Angle is one of the first book that teaches readers how to fish. It covers tackle, species, cleaning, and cooking fish, but as intended as a way to feed a population, not as a mean of sport or means of sport. Still, it's one of the most important instructional fishing books ever printed, and Walton is right there uh, alongside of that. Okay, so that brings us to my all-time favorite instructional fishing book. But before I share that wisdom with you, let's get a quick recap of my top nine instructional fishing books leading up to this. At 10, The Complete Manual for Young Sportsmen, the original handbook for hunting, fishing, and game. At nine, Ken Oberek's The Practical Guide, a Practical Angler's Guide to Successful Fishing. At 8, John Weiss's Advanced Bass Fishing. At 7, McLean's New Standard Fishing Encyclopedia and International Angling Guide. At 6, IGFA's 101 Freshwater Fishing Tips and Tricks by Bill Dance. At 5, The Total Fishing Manual, Catching Giant Fish with These 318 Skills by Joe Carmel. At 4, Bob McNally's Fisherman's Knots, Fishing Rigs, and How to Use Them. At 3, Joan Wolf's fly casting techniques at number two, The Complete Angler by Isaac Walton. And my number one instructional fishing book then has to be, you guessed it, you know it, you love it, Vic Dunway's Complete Book of Baits, Rigs, and Tackle. Now, my grandfather gave me a copy of this book when I was eight or nine, and it's been by my side ever since. I probably have half a dozen copies of it now from various editions and reprintings, but the book itself really is the best instructional fishing book available to anglers. Dunaway, of course, had been a sports writer for the Miami Herald and then in the 1960s became editor of Florida Sportsman Magazine. Published originally in 1971, The Complete Book of Bates, Rigs, and Tackle is one of the most popular instructional fishing books ever to be published. In fact, it holds the honor of being the all-time national best-selling fishing know-how book. It is comprehensive, and it covers fresh and salt water in just about any way you can fish them. This is the guidebook you need to have. And let me just say that this is a fantastic book to give a kid who is interested in learning to fish. Yeah, kids can watch their YouTube TikTok how-to fish videos, but this book is so much more in terms of instruction. But beyond introducing kids to fishing through the book, it's a book that all anglers need to have as a reference. So it is indeed my all-time favorite, top of the chart, a number one instructional fishing book. And as a bonus, let me say that as a devout reader of instructional fishing books, I probably learned more from two other book-like publications over the years and continue to do so than just about any other book out there. The Bass Pro Catalog and the Cabela's Catalog are as responsible for my learning about fishing as any book, magazine, TV show, or day on the water. As a kid, I craved the days when the new catalog would come in the mail. I would sit on my bed and read every page and every description of every item in those catalogs. And I'd imagine filling imaginary tackle boxes full of the gear listed there. Those catalogs taught me more about fishing than just about any book out there. I still get excited when they show up in the mail. And I always sit down at the kitchen table and flip through every single page, taking in everything even tackle and gear for fishing that I will never do. Yeah, I love the Bass Pro and Cabela web pages, but those catalogs still bring me a great joy when they show up in the mail, and I always learn something from them. 
And so those are my thoughts about instructional fishing books. And I am sorry that I couldn't have made this a top 50 list or maybe even a top 100 list. Of course, I sure missed a book. I'm sure that I missed a book or two or three or four that you think should be on the list. We've all got our favorites. And I am always open to reading a new book. So if you think I've missed an important one, shoot me an email to let me know. You can email me at sid, S-I-D, at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email, and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. All right, let's get back to the casting. Ah, well, my listening crew, that about brings us to the end of another voyage on the Good Ship Rodcast. But let us not drown in the sorrow of parting, because as Charles Dickens once said, the pain of parting is nothing but the joy of meeting again. And since I will be back again next week with a new episode, we can look ahead to the joy of that meeting again. Dickens. <laughs> I do want to thank my good friend Chris Horton, the Senior Director of Fisheries Policy for the Congressional Sportsman Foundation for taking the time to speak with us today. And I also want to thank him and everyone at the Congressional Sportsman Foundation for all they do to help protect the rights of hunters and anglers in this great country and for their ongoing conservation efforts to protect the places where we hunt and fish. I do hope that my discussion of Willet Potstill Reserve Bourbon was of interest to you and that you got something out of the countdown of my top 10 instructional fishing books. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The drag is too tight. I say again, the drag is too tight. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week, and I hope you and all the members of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. And be sure to follow Inventifishing on Twitter and Instagram and friend us on Facebook at Inventifishing. Be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventifishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other great content. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! <laughs>The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!